words are about to be spoken. This is the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy, episode five. We are broadcasting from the Blue Chew Studios. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Hardy at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. I, of course, am John Alba, joined every single week by the man of the hour himself, Big Money Matt, Mr. Matt Hardy. How are you, my friend? Things are getting a little wild these days with Andrade and the family office. I don't know, man. Things are things are a little scary over there. There is. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. We are officially we're merged and we're a conglomerate working together. The Andrade Hardy family office, you know, and he's looking to uh, book Darby right now and then put him under a uh, contract for we fee. He hadn't been successful as of yet, but you know, he's going to continue uh, pursuing that issue and hopefully it works out because I think Darby is going to make a lot of money going forward. I saw that. And immediately I said to myself and have been saying to myself since I first worked with Darby Allen back in 2016, maybe 2017, I said, this mm-hmm. guy has Jeff Hardy written all over him. Do you see a, a similar comparison there? I, uh, I very much do. Uh, because, uh, when it comes to Darby Allen, he doesn't just remind me of Jeff in the ring as far as being fearless and also a guy that just takes all these insane bumps and he seems to continue to get up and keep going. And he has like this, uh, he's almost tough one. You know, you just can't, you can't break this guy. You can't, you can't put it into this guy. He doesn't get hurt. But on top of that factor with Darby Allen, he also reminds me of Jeff outside the ring because he just really marches to the beat of his own drum. I think if, uh, if you like Darby, he's cool with that. If you don't like Darby, he's cool with that. He really just doesn't give a shit. He's a, a very carefree guy and he, he very much lives in his own world and he's not bothered by outside influences. And that reminds me so much of my brother. Well, uh, we're talking about your brother. I know that the internet would hate me if I didn't ask about this, Matt. Were some yes. reports rumbling this past week that Jeff is a free agent middle of March, you guys are returning to action on some indie shows. And then there was some talk about him in the WWE hall of fame. They're going to hate me if I don't ask about it. So I got to ask Matt, what's, what's the deal. Can you, can you give us any loose lips here? Uh, I certainly can. Uh, The rumors are true. They did try and contact Jeff and bring him back to put him underneath some sort of deal. And they were going to induct him into the hall of fame. And, uh, I mean, to me, it seems like they kind of uh, jumped the gun, as I'd said before. They uh, released him before they ever got his drug test results. And uh, they had a little bit of an issue getting the drug test results back. And then finally, my my brother and my wife got that. And obviously, it was a clean test where he was, uh, you know, totally. Uh, when it comes to the drug test, he was totally clean on every level. And they got that back. But they kind of withheld that for a little while, which was very interesting. And, and I feel like they know they jumped the gun and they feel like they're going to look bad in this scenario. And, and I think they did to a degree. But one thing I can say for Jeff is just he has been super positive and, and super uh, stressless since he's been gone from the WWE. And we are on March 12th and 13th. We're having two big matches at the Hardy Boys. Those are our f- first announced tag team matches and we have about 10 bookings as the Hardy boys lined up all together. Some autograph signings, uh, some matches. So just keep a uh, close eye to my social media, Matt Hardy brand and the extreme life of Matt Hardy brand podcast, where I will constantly keep all you guys in the loop. Big money. Matt is no gimmick there, man. You want to bring the Hardy boys to your indie show. You hit up Matt Hardy. He's got the booking fees for you. He'll, he'll let you know, uh, but you better be ready because the Hardy boys are being, they're still quite the draw, Matt. Yeah, we're, yeah, 
we're a commodity. So, uh, so if you want to book the Hardy Boys, it is going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be getting close to six digits. So make sure you uh, have your checkbook ready and make sure you have your uh, bank account full. <laughs> Will Andrade chip in on any of that? or? Well, maybe. I mean, he paid me $1.7 million okay. to buy into the HFO and make it the AHFO. So, you know, that's pretty good. And I still get my uh, 30% from all my guys. That's He's true. getting a cut of the money. So it was a good business deal for me. But, you know, we Andrade, he, he, he's a very savvy businessman. I got to keep a close eye on him. That's very fair. And a guy that we've learned you have to keep a close eye on, especially in the bathroom, is Michael PSAs. We got quite a lot of feedback from our episode last week. Overall, people really, really enjoyed it as they got to hear some crazy stories about your run with Michael Hayes. Now that you've had a chance to kind of marinate in it, uh, any thoughts on episode four and some of the stuff we talked about on Michael? Yes. It is better to be pissed off than pissed on. (laughs) <laughs> that kind of sums up the Michael Hayes episode. So, uh, yeah, man. I mean, I, I've got lots of love for Michael Hayes. As I have said many times over, no one in this industry has taught me more than Michael Hayes has. No one has held me more than Michael Hayes has. So I always have great love for him when it comes to that. And he really is. And in many ways, he is myself and my brother's wrestling daddy. Well, we are not talking about your wrestling daddy this week here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy. Instead, we're taking a step far back into time, predating Michael Hayes into the era of Omega. I've had a feeling that this would be an episode that a lot of people would be interested in. And I'm not Mm -hmm. surprised to see on social media that they very much are, because if you want to know how Matt Hardy and Jeff Hardy came to be, This is going to be the episode for you as we go through your roots in rural North Carolina here on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. So without further ado, hit us with that mad fact. Mad fact. Matt conceived Omega in an epiphany. Just got to let it breathe to give you the smile there. And that is going to be uh, part of this origin story here of Omega. I guess we've never really taken a deep dive into what exactly made you want to pursue pro wrestling in the first place. You did say last week that you and Jeff, as kids, wanted to be professional baseball players, and you're playing that in high school. So when do things take a turn and and wrestling comes into your periphery? Yeah, I mean, baseball was our first love. You know, we played T-ball, we played coach pitch, we played little league, all that. And we were both we were very good baseball players and that was like our love. And we watched baseball on TV, the Atlanta Braves, they were the closest franchise. It was the closest to us. Uh, so we we're big Atlanta Braves fans early on. And we had to go to a, a few Durham Bulls games when we were very young as well. So like we we're big baseball fans and that was really our passion. And we watched wrestling here and there, but WrestleMania four, where the macho man won the world title. We had a, a bet and we were, we both bet one another who we thought was going to win the tournament because we were like casual fair weather pro wrestling fans at that, at that time. And I bet on the macho man because I thought the macho man was the coolest, you know, because not only was he this larger than life over the top personality with this crazy voice. Oh yeah. He also did a flying elbow drop off the top rope. And that was very different than a lot of the other guys back in the day, because that, that that's when it was a, a big man's world. And you didn't see a lot of high flying, a lot of exciting finishing moves. So Macho Man was a was was my guy. He was truly my guy. And uh, I, I picked Macho Man to win that. And he did. And then after he won that tournament and we went back and watched the show, like we just fell in love with wrestling. That was the event that totally 
got us hooked. WrestleMania for the WWE World Title Tournament. And from that point on, Jeff and I watched every episode of wrestling that we possibly could, whether it was WWF at the time or NWA. We saw a little bit of world class, you know, later ECW showed up, you know, in the Madison Square Garden Network. But like Jeff and I had decided, like these guys are living, breathing superheroes. This is what we want to do. And we decided to pattern everything in our lives to do whatever we had to do to become professional wrestlers. Was it in that moment that you said baseball's out of the way for us, we're not going to be pro baseball players. Like wrestling is the path. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just really like, uh, we're both big comic book fans as well. I actually, Mm -hmm. one of my famous Matt facts is Matt has a very valuable comic book collection, which is true. And uh, at, at that point, whenever I loved comic books and superheroes and whatnot, we're like professional wrestling is the closest you can get to being like a real life superhero, because not only are you this larger than life personality, you're also doing these like superhuman things in a ring and you're doing them live in front of people and you don't have a stuntman doing it. So we're like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. We have to do this. And I remember originally, like right from the jump, I remember guys then weighed, they were bigger. I remember Macho Man was 245. That was his weight for a long time. And I was like, I have to be 245, at least 235. And I just remember eating as many being like pork and beans as I can, which is eat cans and cans and cans of pork and beans because I had to gain weight. I had to get bigger. I had to get thicker. I had to get, I had to get more size on, you know, and I was poor obviously at that time. And I was eating pork and beans like crazy. Hmm. Definitely not the best idea to be around the Hardy boys at that point <laughs> after, after all that uh, out of curiosity. Cause you know, I'm a huge baseball guy myself. Yes. Jeff strikes me as a either shortstop outfielder combo And you probably, I could see you being third base outfield combo is, am I on there or no? Wow. You're, you're pretty good. Okay. Uh, You're, you're pretty good. We both, we, I I pitched some, Jeff was a shortstop the majority of the time. And I also played third base as well, which is, you were very much on the money there, but I I would pitch and uh, I played third base and and Jeff was primarily a shortstop. Sometimes he'd play second. Yeah. Jeff is a shortstop, just the acrobatic nature of it, the yeah. range. That seems yeah, like that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And center field is the shortstop of the outfield. So that's why I was thinking maybe yes. there. So that's pretty cool. Just a little tidbit there. If, uh, yeah. And, and it was one thing we, we, we did. We dipped in all those positions a little bit. We tried different things. But like in, in the big scheme of things, I ended up being a third baseman. Jeff was a shortstop. And you nailed it. You nailed it. And then I also pitched as well. You see uh, that any of the house Hardy playing baseball down the line? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, they're, they're all pretty athletic and, and maybe that is even by design because I kind of push them into doing things that's going to keep them athletic and, and be in shape. So it's a possibility. Who knows? They're they're I think they're all going to be very athletic. Well, you can push them towards baseball or you can push them towards trampoline wrestling because <laughs> this is something that anyone who's followed the careers of the Hardys know there's the videotapes out there. You guys, as kids, start the Trampoline Wrestling Federation, and you're more or less just copying things that you see on TV. And I know I'm not alone in identifying this. If you were a kid in the 90s, wrestling was so hot. If you had access to a trampoline, this is what you were doing. Everyone was doing this. I had this in my neighborhood. Uh, Everyone did. What do you remember about getting that started, and how did you feel when you were mimicking these larger than life comic book characters? Well, I remember we begged our dad for about a year to get a trampoline. And uh, if we 
could get a trampoline, we knew we'd be set because if we're going to get a trampoline, we're going to get on here. We're going to practice all these moves. We're going to master all the pro wrestling moves that we saw on TV. We're going to emulate everything. And we get a ring and we would save up money. And for $20, we could rent a video camera. And it's not like the small video cameras. It was the old school, big yes. video cameras that took a VHS tape. And we would wrestle against one another. And we would like write down and like orchestrate these long matches with all, all these spots in it. And we would film it just on a trampoline. And then once we did that a couple of times, we're like, hold up, we need to like up the ante. Let's go in the forest. Let's cut down some trees and we'll put them in the ground around the uh, around trampoline and we'll actually get garden hose. We'll run cable through it and we'll build an actual ring. And we did that. And then we said, OK, let's up the ante more. If we really want to make this look good while we're filming stuff with this camcorder, we need to have like a stadium, an arena. And our dad, he was a tobacco farmer. And whenever he would take his dried out tobacco to the market, he would always cover it with these plastic sheets. So we <laughs> cut down trees from the forest and we dug holes in the ground and we put up these big ass poles and we would nail these sheets of plastic all around and we painted stuff up with spray paint where we had like, you know, trampoline wrestling federation, Wolverine, which was Jeff's name, high voltage, which was my name, all the stars names. And we built like an arena and we filmed these videos. We actually did so many of these videos and we had so much content. We would, both wear masks. We did six or seven different gimmicks either. We would wrestle one another. We had a couple of the friends we met that came and uh, would partake in the silliness with us. We actually put together, I cut one with two VCRs, a best of tape. And we made a tape and we uh, replicated it over and over. And we sold it to local video stores as well and had it in there being rented out for the longest time, which was something we were very proud of that time. Like We had our wrestling in our backyard, the TWF, in some local video stores around uh, around the, the area. This episode of The Extreme Life of Matt Hardy is very much going to be a love letter to local yes. community pro wrestling. I For sure. I, when I was starting my on-air career, I was in small market Bangor, Maine, and I'm reading our notes for this show, and I'm like, man, I have experienced these things. I have felt these things because there's a certain charm to that small town, um, what's the right word? The ownership that they take in having mon pa promotions or organizations like this. What was yeah. the reception from your friends and some of the members in the local community to seeing this stuff? Uh, there, there were a lot of people that thought it was cool. They thought, thought you know, they, they thought we were crazy that we were doing this in some ways, but they also thought we were like, cool, you're trying to chase a dream. That's just pretty cool that you're doing that. There were some people that laughed at us. And like later on down the road, once we made it, I remember like we had some great apologies following that as well. <laughs> but what started is a guy who is six years older than me, who actually uh, went to school in Cameron Elementary. And we that's where I went to uh, elementary school at. His name was uh, Tracy Cadell. And he is the father of Trevor Goodell, which is Cameron Grimes, if some of you don't know that. And he actually was like in the seventh or eighth grade when I was in, you know, uh, probably second or third. And there was a point where the bus that we both rode on, we were on the same road and we would get picked up together. It actually got into an accident, a crash, and he helped me get off the bus. And I knew him because he only lived like a mile, mile and a half away from me on the road. He actually came by my house and said, hey, I heard you guys build a ring out here. And like. You guys are like wrestling in your backyard. Like I've always wanted to be a wrestler. Like, you know, have you guys ever thought about doing shows somewhere or whatever? And we're like, no, not really. We're just kind of like kids. We're just doing this right now. And we're trying to 
we're trying to like uh, teach ourselves how to do this and train ourselves, so to say. And he said, well, you know, if you ever, you know, want to try and do something more, let me know. And then he actually came by and he like worked out some on a trampoline, which was so crazy. You know, we were teenagers. He was, you know, 20 years old, whatever at this time, 21. And uh, he just loved wrestling so much. So obviously, whenever we first got together to build a promotion, myself and Tracy were the guys kind of like leading the charge for it. And we were contacted by a game, a guy named Kenneth Morgan, who's just like someone who was a fair carny. If you've ever been to a local County fair or state fair, someone who like sets up a ride or works a ride, you know, breaks it down, works with the fair. He's a, a you know, a, a traveling vagabond, you know, that's exactly what Kenneth Morgan was. And he reached out to us and said, Hey, come, to my house. Uh, I remember Tracy drove me. I didn't have license at that point. I don't think. And then he drove me to Kenneth Morgan's house and he showed us this 20 by 20 ring he had, which had a trampoline in the very middle of it. And the rest of the ring, we took some falls on. It felt like concrete. (laughs) I mean, there was like no give on it. It was like a concrete ring with a trampoline in the center. And then he said, Hey, I have a deal where we can do some fair shows. Would you guys like to come wrestle for me? And we said, you know what, man, we'll give it a shot. Why wouldn't we? So the very first show that we ever did, it was myself, it was my brother, Jeff, it was Tracy Cadell, it was Marty Garner, and then there were two other guys that were Tracy's friends. We did a show with six people, and that was in October of 1992. And the very first match, and this kind of becomes a theme as time goes on, was the the Hill, High Voltage, who very much mimicked the Fabulous Three Birds, the Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin renditions, versus wolverine which was jeff hardy and very much mimicked sting at the time we were the opening match and there was about 300 350 people out there and to hear those oohs and the ahs and the cheers and the boos we were hooked (laughs) right from the jump that was our first time in front of a live crowd and we knew more than ever at that juncture that we wanted to be professional wrestlers and make a career out of this so context here yes how old are both of you guys 18, 16, 18, like around that area? Uh, yeah, if you, if you, well, no, if you go back to this, I was, we were probably 16 and 14. Okay. Yeah, 16, I was 16, 14. Yeah. Completely self trained. You have no, completely self trained. No professional training at all. You are no sh- professional training. What you have ne- never, ne- never been in a full fledged, legit pro wrestling ring before this time. You know, on a trampoline, uh, messed around outside. And then we've been in this, this hybrid, uh, half concrete ring, half trampoline. What is the local wrestling scene like? Is a, sh- a fair show pretty much your only opportunity to see pro wrestling in the local sphere unless like WCW or WWE is in town or near town, I should say? Yeah, there there were a few independents that came through. I remember there was a, an independent that came through at one point, which Ken Shamrock was on. I want to say maybe the Pitbulls were on. And this was like, you know, early 90s, once again, maybe 91, 92, something like that, right before we did the show. But as far as the, the fair would go, there, there wasn't any kind of promotion in our area that ran regularly. So that that is the reason, like, I feel like we accepted Ken's offer, like, OK, well, there's no wrestling here. You know, maybe we can make wrestling be a thing here. Maybe we can make wrestling like, you know, something that people would come out and watch and do. And after we had a few shows with Kenneth and we did a few of these fair shows, we actually booked the Southern Pines National Guard Armory, which ended up being our venue, you know, when it was all said and done. As far as Omega goes, that was the ECW arena or the Madison Square Garden for Omega, the the Southern Pines National Guard Armory. 
we did one show there, which was which was pretty good. It was pretty attentive because we promoted it real hard that we did in the the hybrid, you know, concrete ring and trampoline ring. And that, that was that was a lot of fun. That was a, a long ass work day for sure. Just putting that, you know, taking the ring, putting it in. When we do these fair shows, we'd usually have a couple nights, maybe two or three nights that we could do and we could leave the ring set up. But just to take the ring in on a certain day at a certain time and then have to have it out that night, it was very demanding. So after that point, we realized like we weren't going to make a lot of money from this. And, and it really wasn't myself and Tracy and my brother so much. It was Kenneth Morgan more than anyone. He was the guy promoting these shows, but he's like, well, these aren't going to make a lot of money. So I don't know if it is, is worth my time to do it because I'm looking, he's looking for a payday at this point. And we're very passionate about what we're doing. So we end up buying the ring from him and we're going to convert it into a full, full-fledged uh, regular pro wrestling ring. And that is kind of where ECWF, the East Coast Wrestling Federation, which is the first generation of Omega, that's where it came to be. They're the best four words that any man could hear. I knew you'd come. <laughs> Are you looking to take your gimmick from broken to woken? Well, lucky for you. This episode of The Extreme Life of Matt Hardy is brought to you by Blue Chew. I know a lot of wrestling fans have plenty of bravado when it comes to sharing opinions on Twitter. But what about when it comes to stepping up to the plate in the bedroom? That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. But it comes in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Now, if you're like me and you're always on the road or you're at work at different hours every day, no problem. You can take them on a moment's notice. And then what do you know? Things are about to get extreme. And the process is incredibly easy. Sign up at bluechew.com and consult with one of their licensed medical providers. Once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And all those confidence problems will soon become obsolete the best part is it's all done online you don't have to go to the doctor you don't have to wait in line at the pharmacy and you can spend your free time creating poetry in motion rather than having awkward conversations about your ladder breaking before you can get it set up bluetooth tablets are made in the usa and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package House Hardy has grown in size quite a bit over the years. That's because I know the importance of taking the twist of fate into your own hands rather than letting yourself become a whisper in the wind. V1 of your sex life may not have been great, but V2 can be. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you have our promo code HARDY at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com promo code HARDY to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank you, Blue Chew, for sponsoring our podcast. And on the last number, 65084, Equal Housing Lender. 
Christmas is finally behind us, but are you dreading those credit card bills headed your way? Well, here's a pro tip. Don't get stuck making minimum payments in the new year. Savewithconrad.com can help you get rid of your credit card debt just like that. Oh, and we're going to get you the best deal on a mortgage you've ever had. But how's this for starters? No payments until March. You don't need money out of your pocket or perfect credit. So find out how much money you can save for free right now at savewithconrad.com. Well, let's talk about ECWF. And also, I just want to say this too, like opening match, you versus Jeff Hardy in 1992, 16 and 14 years old. What a fever dream, right? Like imagine if you were one of those 300 plus people that were in attendance for that match, having no clue what you were witnessing is unreal, literally unreal. I remember being at a Middlesex County Fair show in New Jersey back in like 2014, 2013, and seeing this young kid named Joey Janella. And it's <laughs> it's just funny how this stuff happens at these fair shows, man. You're right. There's a charm. So 1993 rolls around uh, ECWF, the East Coast Wrestling Federation. Now, this is something that you and Tracy go in on together officially here. You guys are partners. Yes. yes. Um, how central of a character would you say Tracy is to your wrestling journey and Jeff's wrestling journey? I, I mean, he was very important because without him being the older adult, I don't think a lot of things would have got accomplished. You know, like, uh, for instance, to rent the rent the armories, you know, when we first started doing it, I think we needed him because he was actually over 18 at that point. So I wouldn't have got done without him. So he he made sure that happened. And also he he had a, a full-fledged job. Obviously, I was still in school at this point. And I remember when I was a senior in high school, there were some people that thought it was real cool. And there were some people that thought it was silly. You know, but like I didn't I didn't give a shit because I was like all about it. And I knew this is what I want to do. I was I was obsessed with pro wrestling at that point. So without Tracy and without his uh, regular job and also just he had the ability to like go out and do stuff constantly like he would make all the tickets. Uh, I would put together a flyer. He would go get all these things printed up. I mean, he, he was he was very important, man. He he. It, he was a very central part of the nucleus of the beginning of Omega, which was the ECWF. And man, we planned so hard for this first show forever. And I just thinking back, like we put so much time and effort into it. And it was literally me and Tracy, you know, and, and Tracy did most of the legwork as far as like booking the building and like making sure there's going to be someone there to sell concessions. You know, he's going to make sure the tickets are there. Uh, the pre-sales, we weren't around and got sponsors. We would like, even me at, the, at that point, I would, you know, dress up with a, you know, some nice pants and a nice shirt and maybe even throw on a tie. And then we would go business to business looking for sponsors, you know, and if you would sponsor our thing, we'd give you X amount of tickets. We'd promote you in the program. We'd do whatever. And that was our, our goal was to make sure to pay for the venue and all our expenses through the sponsors. And we did that the majority of the time, but man, it was hard work. And I'll tell you what, it, if, uh, if you ever want to get a, if, if you ever want to take a hit and like confidence, you know, try going into some business that wants nothing to do with pro wrestling and ask them to sponsor your event and see what they think about it. Especially when you're a 16 or 17 year old kid, it's uh it was a, a couple of those times whenever we got uh, rejected and told, no, they were, they were pretty hard to swallow, but it, it also helps build you up into a man and helps give you a little confidence to, to do things you're afraid of doing. So anyway, uh, long story short, this deal with Tracy, we worked really hard. We got this event. This event happened. And this was like going to be our breakthrough event, the first ever ECWF event. And a reoccurring theme 
the very first match was myself versus Jeff. And it was me, high voltage, the hill, the bad guy against my brother, Jeff Hardy as Wolverine as the babyface. And we wanted to kick off the show in, uh, in a great light and give them an amazing match to begin with. And uh, whenever Jeff came out and wrestled, he did his entrance. He was in the ring. I came out. I was wearing these shades and I was literally so stressed out because I had booked all the talent, which were like our friends, our local friends. I'd booked all the talent. I had wrote the card. I had done the angles. I was making sure to take care of everyone's pay. I had so many responsibilities going on. I was so stressed out and I ran around all day. We, it took us forever to set up the ring because the ring was in a million different pieces. It wasn't convenient at all. The ring took like seven hours to set up that day. It was insane. And I had never eaten throughout the course of the day. And finally I got to eat a submarine uh, subway sandwich. And as I was eating it, this is like 45 minutes before bell time. I threw up all over the place just between being sick and just the stress and everything else. And then when it came down to our entrance, Jeff does his entrance. He's in the ring. People are like, yeah, this is a cool looking guy. He's got a nice face paint. I come out. I'm going to heal it up real big. Uh, we had just got these mats from Union Ponds High School where we went to high school. at. They were going to throw them out and we took them. And they were the big, thick mats that were like four inches thick. They're not comfortable at all. Not comfortable they were very hard as well but i remember coming out and i was doing almost like the free birds i was going yeah 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 and i had these shades on it's dark there were no lights by the ring and i eat it i trip over the mat right on my face <laughs> boom and then i get up i'm already sick i feel like absolute shit and i remember getting up and i was like so, so embarrassed and i just grabbed a sign that said like you suck or something and tore it up and tried to like get my heat back and feel cool and then i got in the ring i remember looking in the ring and jeff was going <laughs> like laughing at me. So that was a, that was a, that was a pretty tough moment. But we had in the ring and we had our first match and uh, we killed it. We had a, had a great match and Ted Hobgood, who would later become our ring announcer and commentator, Scott Sullivan is what he, the name he went under the AKA. Uh, he actually watched his first match and he wasn't expecting much, but he was blown away with what he ultimately ended up seeing that night. That's going to be a theme of this episode too, is, you're seeing a lot of these matches and they seem remedial. They're small town, they're local, but there's something different about them. There's something that is catching people's eyes and it's creating fire. I'll tell you what, I didn't realize that bodily functions were going to be such a reoccurring theme here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy. But the last few weeks we've, we've had a few of those stories. I'm glad to hear that you were able to get through the match. Do you consider that to be like your first, like, real big time pro wrestling match once you're in that organized promotion there? Yeah. I mean, especially with all the stress going on, you know, and like you said, yes, it's a reoccurring theme. There's been a lot of urination and regurgitation here at the extreme <laughs> life of Matt Hardy, it seems like, but yeah, it, it was a very, very stressful moment. And, and it did feel like my first real big time pro wrestling match because two, I was doing double duty that night. Besides having that match, the I would go into the main event and wrestle against Sub-Zero, who would later be known as Champagne, which was Marty Garner, who's a very famous guy who uh, was like the, probably the one that didn't make it. You know, we had 11 guys that ended up signing contracts. We had 12 guys that appeared on, you know, national TV or big promotion TV. Marty was the only guy that didn't sign a contract. You know, yeah. he, he appeared for ECW, but never signed an official deal. But he was always one of our guys from day one. He was a, he was an, an Omega OG, an Omega original. 
So uh, that night, whenever I wrestled uh, Marty, I know Ted Hobgood had told me time and time again, like you did a 450 and it blew me away. And there were things that Jeff did as well. I mean, we were doing any move you could imagine. We were doing in that juncture. We were doing 450 splashes. We were doing shooting star presses. I mean, we any move that was happening in pro wrestling at that time, we were able to do it at Omega. And we had a lot of talent that were really athletic and also young and hungry. And my mentality right from the jump was I would tell everybody, like, if you can go out there and steal the show, go do it. I know typically in pro wrestling, they wanted to build a show like the first match is very basic. It stays in the ring. They don't go out of the ring. I said to hell with all that. I said, if you can steal the show, I want you to steal it. Give everybody a main event. That was my mentality. We had a chance to talk to Ted in our research for this episode, and he passed along some of his recollections and talking about that first match. I just want to read this to the audience because there's excellent, excellent imagery here used by Ted. He says, quote, it all started at the Southern Pines National Guard Armory with ECWF, of course. The ring, since it used to be a trampoline ring, was sagging in the middle. And with that blue tarp as a canvas, it looked like a swimming pool. And if memory serves, the first match was high voltage versus Will the Wisp. Willow came out first wearing sneakers and a ski mask and didn't promise to be a very good show. Then voltage comes out and trips over the floor mats. This is definitely going to be a pitiful show. But then, of course, we see Matt Hardy wrestling Jeff Hardy. And it's amazing. You, referring to you, Matt Hardy, even hit the 450. And as I always tell everybody, there are only two people in the world doing the 450. Two Cold Scorpio and Hayabusa. And here's a kid in rural North Kakalaki delivering it beautifully. There's a charm there, Matt. There's something unique and endearing about that. Did you have yeah. any perception that the audience was receiving it in a similar way to Ted did there? The audience enjoyed themselves. I mean, we we put on a hell of a show, no doubt about it. I mean, we were, uh, you know, we may have been guilty of being untrained professional wrestling mud show athletes at that juncture, <laughs> you know, but like we were, we were very passionate about what we we're doing and we had watched a lot of wrestling and we, we knew what was exciting to us. And that's what we wanted to, that's what we wanted to emulate in the ring. The things that were exciting to us, we want to have a whole show of that, a whole show of excitement. And the people really liked it. And the thing that was so cool about it is that we built up a, a great audience as time went on, you know, especially in the Southern Pines area at the Southern Pine National Guard Armory. So you keep building a little bit of momentum here. You're bringing in some names. You mentioned Marty before any other names come to mind at this time that are joining your crew. Yeah, I mean, like our our core our core group crew was you know Matt Hardy, Jeff Hardy, Shannon Moore, who was a, a couple years younger than Jeff. He became a regular. Jason Arndt, who would uh, who was wrestling as Venom, who would later go on to be known as Joy Abs. He was one of our regular guys, and he was just insanely talented. He was like so strong, uh, so athletic. He could do a standing backflip. You know, he he was so so talented, so strong as well. And he, he was a, a great, a great addition to Omega. We had met a guy at that time too. Uh, Tracy did uh, during his, Tracy's job was he was a person who drove around a Coke truck and he filled the Coke vending machines. So on his route, he actually met Eddie Rainwater, who was a known professional wrestler. And that was a big deal for us, Tracy meeting this guy, because it opened up doors, which allowed us to like, start network networking and meet other guys. 
Eddie Rainwater was a was an old school professional wrestler, kind of a weekend warrior. wasn't built, wasn't in great shape. He also brought in another wrestler named John Savage, who was a great heel, and we learned a lot from him, especially from a psychological standpoint. He had great psychology. He was a great heel as well. Those guys were working with us, um, and we had had other guys we were adding here and there. Like later on, we would add more guys, but we had a very core solid group. We also met Caprice Coleman. Uh, around this time, a lot of people probably know him from Ring of Honor. He was a commentator there and also wrestled as well. We were the first guys to meet him, and he actually was a, a product of the uh, ECWF New Frontier Wrestling Alliance training school. He was one of the first people that, that graduated from our training school. Uh, you mentioned Shannon Moore. That's a name that we're going to talk about later this year on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. We got an episode planned on him, but I, if I'm not mistaken, he was involved with your trampoline wrestling federation as well. And he was like eight, nine years old. And you guys are like doing suplexes on him and knocking the wind out of him. And he eventually becomes the cameraman, right? Uh, yeah. He, he that, that's what he did initially when he first started, whenever we were doing the trampoline wrestling shows, he was, he was our cameraman and that was kind of his gig. Like that's how he was paying his dues. Amazing. And we were hoping to get some more size on him. Just, he was so small and so young and he was friends with my brother, you know, and like the very first time I met him, we were in a trampoline ring and I went to superplex him off the top and I actually dropped him down. And he did like a slingshot suplex off the pole back into the ring, <laughs> probably bruised his ribs really bad. Like it's child abuse. <laughs> Jeff was very mad at me. I know. But uh, Shannon, Shannon had been there from day one as well. And he kind of <laughs> paid his dues. And then once he got in the ring, he obviously, as we all know, became a pretty well-known wrestling superstar. No good carny, son of a bitch, piece of shit asshole, Matt Hardy. Back at it again. <laughs> I was getting away free from all these guys. I, I, then maybe I was just paying the fee. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, so I think what's important to note here is that, and you kind of alluded to it before, you're basically doing all of the creative and booking for this stuff at this time, and you're 19, 20 years old, right? I mean, things are picking up fast for you here from a creative standpoint, and you're forced to step into a role that, man, I don't think any other 19, 20 year olds really ever find themselves in. What did that do for you in terms of helping grow your wrestling mind? Uh, I, I think it really pushed me to be creative. It always, it also pushed me to be a better business person as far as like dealing with people from like a talent relations standpoint or trying to like, uh, sell people on doing specific stuff at a show. I, th I think I gained a lot of experience doing that. And when I talked about the whole Eddie Rainwater, John Savage deal, they actually were the first person that connected me with the Italian stallion and George South. And I actually went out there and did a show for them. I did one match and they put me in against the guy that was like their enforcer in their promotion. And he really beat the shit out of me. I went out, I did a 450. I did a springboard moonsault. I did a lot of cool moves. And then, Attain Stallion, who was one of the who was the inspiration for Big Money Matt, obviously. He did the big sell on me. He's like, Well, you know, you're a really athletic kid, you know, but you need to you need to be trained. If you pay me three thousand dollars, I can train you and then you can be a pro professional wrestler. Like, dude, like I don't have any money. <laughs> I'm like a broke teenager, you know. Like I I rake pine straw, I sell pine straw. Uh, I've taught myself how to sew. I'm making some gear and I sell sponsorships to try and promote shows, you know. So I don't have any money. So thanks, but no thanks. But later he contacted me back and that's how we first got our foot into doing WWE extra work. But anyway, 
the thing I was going to say about Omega, the thing that I learned is like there wasn't a ton of places around for us to work that we were really invited to at that point, you know, considering we weren't trained, we didn't have any kind of great resume. So I figured the more shows I could run, uh, it would give us all more of a chance to like, you know, season ourselves and also get experience. And that was kind of the whole goal behind it. One of the things that slowed us down was just finances, because once again, I was a broke kid. Tracy was uh, a young man who didn't have a lot of money. He didn't have like a great job or anything. And we actually met a guy named Jens Lutz. And this guy ran a video store and he was one of our regular sponsors. And upon doing more research into Jens, he had told us that he always had a dream of being a professional wrestler. And he said, what if I invested in your shows? And he had an extra building. He ran a video store in Carthage, North Carolina. He said, I have a an empty building here beside beside us. You wouldn't have to store your ring outside anymore. You could store it in my building and leave it here and you could bring the guys in. You have a nice warm place. You guys could work out and train and whatnot. So it sounded like a pretty good deal. And he was going to like upgrade the ring and he was going to, to make sure to pay like these building fees and whatnot. And it like, okay, well maybe this is the next step in, in doing things. So we decided at that point, we took up gents on his offer and we changed the name of the promotion to new frontier wrestling association which was uh, NFWA. And then things don't quite go as planned. It's easy when you're so <clears throat> desperate to find success. You're, you're, you want so badly to find a gateway to achieve your dreams that when someone like him comes along, especially as young as you were, you're willing to do whatever it takes to make that all happen. But then there are yeah. some warning signs, Matt. What goes down? Well, uh, we start doing shows. We continue doing our, you know, same venues. We were doing Southern Pines. We were doing the Sanford. Same crew of people, generally speaking, right? Yeah, it's the same same crew of people, you know. But now you have gents, gents who is actually putting money into this project, you know. And he's a guy who's a businessman. He'd been around for a while. He'd made money. He ran a couple of video stores, and he's investing money. But once again, almost very similar to Kenneth, he wasn't seeing a return on this money. So then that became an issue with him. And then once he realized, like, this is kind of like something I'm investing all this money into, even though he was getting to put on a mask and he would he would wrestle. So he was living out one of his fantasies. You know, to us, we were just like passionate about this. And like it was a chance for us to like, you know, own our craft. And it was the chance for us to gain experience and get more ring time. And that's all we were really looking for at this point. You know, it wasn't about the money. It was about, you know, improving and enhancing our talents. So then I got to the point where about a year after working with gents, he said, well, you know, I, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore, guys. I can't invest in this and I can't do this. But, you know, I do have your ring in my venue and uh, I want to be paid back for the money I spent. So he demanded $1,200. Or he was going to hold our ring hostage. We weren't going to get out of of our venue. So that became a a huge ordeal. And uh, myself and Tracy and my brother and a couple other guys, we like all, you know, came together and tried to like do extra work and extra jobs. And we all raised this money so that we could get our ring back because he held it hostage. And then obviously he was out and we decided like we just wanted a different start because that, that NFWA now had left a bad taste in our mouth. Right. And right around the same time, we started working for other independent promotions, one of them being ACW. And in ACW, they had like television here in the Mid-Atlantic area. They had pretty decent TV on like 
you know, local cable access channels here in North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia. And we started doing some shows for these guys. And they had a little network of people that were like the investors for their shows. And Thomas Simpson, a gentleman named Thomas Simpson was working for those guys. And anytime we'd work, because we worked this super athletic style with all these high spots and these cool moves, moonsaults and 450s and, and dives and topes. And this was what Thomas was all about. He would always give us extra when we did the ACW stuff. But it turns out the big boss there, Mitch Gowd, he said, well, I know you guys have your own promotion that you do Omega, but you've also, you're going to WWE and you're doing it on their TV. And even though his TV wasn't shit in the big scheme of things, he said, well, if you're going to do jobs on Vince's TV, then damn it, you're going to have to do jobs on my TV as well. And we're like, well, it's quite a big difference. You know, he's actually paying us like big money, like hundreds of dollars at a time whenever we do it. And you're not. So like, if you want us to just do jobs on your TV, then we'll just, you know, we'll leave. There's other places we can work and we're starting to be in demand and we're starting to build a little bit of a name because people are seeing us on WWE TV from doing extra work. And then uh, I remember telling Thomas that our group and our core group that did all the ACW shows was myself, my brother, Jeff, Jason, Art Venom, Marty Garner, Champagne and Shannon Moore. So we said, if one of us goes, we all go. You lose all five of us. And uh, as Thomas said, they called them Southern Pines crew. When the Southern Pines crew walked, Thomas decided to walk as well. And he was willing to come work with us. Yeah. So there's a lot to digest there. I, I yes. want to break that down a little more, though. So there feels like there's a juxtaposition here between Thomas, who is Thomas is a really integral part of this story. And we're going to get into him in a second. But going back to uh, your failures just prior to this with the promotion closing and whatnot, I feel like this is a good lesson that can be learned because there are a lot of small town promoters out there who are enamored with the idea of running a wrestling company and getting to hold the pen and being, I booked this shit. I booked that shit. This is my champion, my company, but they don't realize the hardships and the financial struggles that you may encounter. What's your piece of advice that you would give to anyone who's maybe looking to buy into a promotion or invest in a promotion or start a promotion and that have those big eye dreams of I, I can book a promotion one day? I think if you're looking to invest in a promotion or get involved in a promotion, the first thing you have to realize is that you need to do it because you love pro wrestling and you're passionate about it. You don't need to do it as a business investment to make money. Because you're not going to. <laughs> it's not, not a money-making thing, especially on the very lower level. You know, if you're going to invest into something, do it because you love it. You, you love the, the art of pro wrestling. You, you, you want to be a booker or you want to be a performer or you want to, you know, do whatever act you're going to do. But if you think you're going to invest into it and it's going to be something that's going to turn around a huge pro uh, profit in a short amount of time, it's not. It's going to be like a... It's going to be a very slow growing process, which you are going to like feed money into, but it allows you to like live out your dreams of being a pro wrestler or a pro wrestler booker. That would be my advice. And I think don't do it for the, don't do it for the money, do it for the passion. All right, listen, we're all adults here. And I know some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or maybe even just unwind after a long day. Well, I'm here to tell you that Lucy is a modern oral nicotine company that makes nicotine gum, lozenges, and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. It's a new year, 2020, right? Finally here. 
Well, why not start it out by switching to a new nicotine product they can feel good about? Now, I've had many family members over the years who had struggles switching from cigarettes, and I wish they had a product like this that would have made the process so much easier with so much versatility and dynamics in terms of different flavors and options. So if you enjoy using nicotine, you should definitely check out Lucy's products at lucy.co. That's lucy.co and use promo code HARDY at checkout. Also, I have to read this disclaimer, warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Remember, if you're interested in a better way to use nicotine, visit lucy.co. Be sure to use that promo code HARDY. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Passion is the word. Passion is the underlying theme of what would ultimately become Omega. It's the name of the DVD, Omega Uncommon Passion, right. that iSpot's put together. And that's where I get my first visual introduction to your boy here, uh, Thomas. And he is a character and a half. And I get a chance to watch some of these interviews with him, and he comes across very genuinely endearing and genuinely invested in helping make something here. And it seems to be where your little crew here is, is also the Southern Pines crew. You are invested in making something of yourselves. What was your first impressions of Thomas and, and when did you realize, okay, he's someone that we could potentially go into business with here? I mean, my, my first impressions of Thomas were that when we worked with ACW and we first met him, he was always super complimentary of what we were doing, which was very nice. Uh, he seemed to give us more respect than a lot of other people in pro wrestling did that we had met so far, which was nice. And that he would always bonus us, which was a big deal. You know, I, I feel like when we were there, if we would get 30 bucks, maybe. But like Thomas would always slide like 20 more bucks in, you know, in our envelope you know, or give us it on the down low because it's a huge deal. What we were doing. it is a huge deal when you're getting those kind of bonuses. And, and he knew, you know, that that was going to win us over. And Thomas was just like a, a very, he's a very sweet Southern bell in many, many ways, you know, just like <clears throat> he has the accent. He has kind of like that, uh, that, that dialect. He has that kind of charm to him in so many ways, but Thomas always seemed like someone who would be up for like trying. And he also had money which he could spend and he knew he wasn't going to make a million dollars automatically. He was willing to invest in something he thought uh, he was going to enjoy because he was passionate about pro wrestling. And I think we, we both understood that we both had great passion as far as like making a great wrestling product. And that's why, you know, myself and Thomas, we were such a great mutual admiration society for one another. And he was certainly invested in making something actually happen here. Um, so you guys say you're done with ACW. You want nothing to do with that. And if you all, if one goes, you all go. So you all go. Right. So Thomas meets with you guys at his parents' house in South Carolina the following week. And he says that 
you proposed to start a promotion together. Do you have any memories of this? Yeah, I, I remember we said, you know, we've, we've got a group here. You know, we, we got a ring back. It's an old ring. It's beat up. It was the initial ring that we were using, you know, from Kenneth Morgan that we had converted over. And now, you know, we lost it for a little while. And we lost a lot of time in doing shows whenever we had to raise, you know, this uh, this fee after our ring was taken hostage Weepy. by Jens. Yeah, a wee fee. Jens got us. Jens was also a good big money, mad inspiration, I guess. But, you know, we, we had, we had lost a little time doing shows and we said, you know, I, I really feel like we kind of need a fresh start in some ways. I, th- I think as a name, we'll, we'll start new. I said, I'll, I'll work on that. And then like uh, Thomas offered to like buy a new ring and he was also going to get guardrails and he was going to get a couple other things. It was like pretty mandatory things for actually having a legitimate wrestling promotion. And once Thomas invested in us and it, it, everybody got along great with him. I mean, he was just, he was a real, a real sweetheart, you know, all across the board is a real sweetheart. And he got along with everybody really well. And he knew there was a lot of potential here and we all did. We knew there was a potential. We just needed an opportunity because once again, we had no one who had a lot of money. We were all literally broke teenagers at, the, at that point, you know, guys who were like in school, you know, who maybe had part-time jobs, whatever. The guy who had the most money of all of us was Jason Arndt Venom because he drove a wrecker for his dad's business at that point. And he made, he made pretty decent money, you know, and that was his gig. So like Thomas was willing to invest in us and he knew we had a lot of talent and we could do a lot of things. And he trusted my mindset. He seemed to be a big fan of like my booking and my creative, my, my creative aspects and, and whatnot. So Thomas uh, went for it and we ended up putting together a deal and we started running Omega. You said that you saw the potential. When you say mm-hmm. potential, what do you mean by that? Potential to become a massively successful promotion, potential to be a place for guys to learn how to work. What are you referring to there? Great. Yeah. I I think whenever we say potential, we did think we had potential to be a promotion that could do great shows and that could actually uh, be, be a, a haven for like creating new guys, guys who can go on to be big stars in the industry. And on top of that, we thought like with, with the with the right amount of time and with the right execution, we could like start running shows all around the North Carolina, South Carolina area and we could draw well and we could like, you know, make some decent money out of it. I think that's what we thought when we said potential. But more importantly, I think we realized we had enough talent and we were knowledgeable enough now and we started making a bit of a name for ourselves. We thought we could make an impact in pro wrestling. So we're talking 1997 here, and you've had your own personal renaissance a little bit. The high voltage name is no more because WCW. Can you confirm this story here that some of those tapes that you sent in somehow ended up in the WCW power plant? Chris Canyon allegedly reveals to you that WCW directly jacked the high voltage name from this. And as a result, you become Surge. Is that fact or is that is that a Matt fact or is that Matt fiction? That that is a fact. It is a mat fact. Yes, I had sent in my uh, WCW Amateur Challenge. You know, once again, we were you know trying every avenue to make it because our dream, our, our dreams, myself and my brother, and for what it's worth, you know, Jason, uh, Marty, and Shannon Moore, all of our dreams were to make livings as a professional wrestler. So we were trying every avenue possible. I sent in my tape. 
uh, of high voltage, the amateur challenge. And then also, in addition to that, I had sent, we had sent several audition tapes. I'd given stuff to WWF at the time. I'd given stuff to WCW, NWA. And I know Chris Kenyon told me in the power plant, they had just this massive library of tapes that people had sent them. And there were guys like Chris Kenyon who would look through these things and watch them. And they had saw my name on this WCW Amateur Challenge. And they'd also saw some of our work. They were familiar with like high voltage and will the wisp in some of our matches even from Indies and whatnot. Insane. And he, he said, Oh, this high voltage, this is his name. And I guess they probably checked. Oh, it's not copyrighted. It's not trademarked. No, it's going to be <laughs> ours. You know? So I remember that being so bummed out. And then it was great to hear that they officially got it from, you know, my tape and, and from my character at that time and utilized it or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I thought too, like if there's another big act known as high voltage, I need to do something different because once something is on TV, you kind of have the rights to it, whether you do or not, it's like, it's yours in, you know, and they were on a big TV program. So they owned high voltage at that point. So I said, I need to be something different. And I ended up inheriting the name surge. Was there ever thought this is a total sidetrack, but like, yes, you tell me this story here. So WCW puts the high voltage name into motion. WWE eventually buys the tape library and the intellectual properties. Was there ever a thought that crossed your mind that you could once again become high voltage in WWE at any point and bring that character back in some weird parallel universe? <laughs> I actually no. I've never thought about that until right now, but that's a hell of a point. I guess in theory, you know, now that we have bought the WCW, the WWE <laughs> had bought happened. the WCW library, it, it could have happened if I had desired it. Uh, the Woken, I, the Woken I, character could have lent itself to you being high voltage, uh, the lake of reincarnation. Man, Matt, it yeah. could have happened. Yeah, there you have it. I was slipping. I guess I was just too focused on my damn government name of Matt Hardy. Uh, anyway, just a thought. So your search <laughs> now, 1997's rolled around. You've decided you're going to have this promotion here. You don't know a name, but then as we learned in this map fact in episode five of the extreme life of Matt Hardy, you have an epiphany one night. Yes. What happens? Yeah. I, uh, after meeting with Thomas and once we kind of had the handshake deal, we agreed we were going to have a promotion and we'd come up, we want to come up with a different creative name. And I remember trying to do everything I could to avoid having the name Federation in it or Alliance or Association. I just I wanted something to be very drastically different, something new and creative, something that would have been, you know, real peak 1997 at the time, I guess. And I, I actually was dreaming. I remember the moon like I was kind of going in and out of sleep. I was very tired. I remember looking at the moon and all of a something, something just came to me, which really did feel like an epiphany. And uh, it was part of the inspiration for the whole Broken My Hardy premonitions as well. But in that moment, as I was like kind of closing my eyes, dozing off and waking up, and I thought organization of modern. And then I remember thinking extreme was like ECW was called extreme championship wrestling. I was like, what could it be, you know, as opposed to like a promotion or, you know, fighting or federation. And then I said, well, what if it's like grappling arts because you're grappling wrestling is grappling and all these elements kind of came to me at one time. And then I was like, hold up, wait, wait, I can get Omega out of that. And Omega is like the last, the final, the ultimate. And I said, if it's Omega, it could be the organization of modern extreme grappling arts 
And I remember thinking, I like put myself over you just like, that's some badass shit, man. <laughs> you know, like I just came up with some badass shit. The organization of modern extreme grappling arts. That was, that was some like Einstein level shit, man. I was a genius in that moment, but it really did. It kind of came to me in a weird, like epiphany feeling like deal. Is that where the team extreme name comes from too? Uh, no, no, it, it isn't. I, I, yeah. It's totally coincidental. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. So what's the reception to the name amongst the crew? Uh, everybody loved it. Or at least maybe they thought because I was the booker, they put me over enough to act like they loved it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it was, it was pretty, pretty well received. And one thing that was cool about, we were just starting to do a mega shows. We had just met uh, the hurricane Shane Helms and his partner at that time, Mike Maverick. And we had just really formed a bond with these guys. And I remember after they checked out, you know, our, our work, you know, we met them on a, another independent show and they checked out our work and they're like, wow, these are some guys that are like us. They're like young and they're hungry and they really, you know, they have a high work rate and they're busting their ass. And that's exactly what we thought of those guys as well. So they were coming to the very first Omega show we were ever going to have in Sanford, North Carolina, the way it worked out. Uh, so we we're very excited to to book them, you know. Mike Maverick and Shane Helms, who everyone knows from becoming famous as the Hurricane, they were going to be a, a very integral part of our crew and a very special part of our crew as well. So our first ever Omega show was slated to be in Sanford, North Carolina, and uh, and these guys were there. And a very funny story about Shane Helms and Mike Maverick. And they're known as the, the, the serial thrillers, correct? That is their yes. tag team name? Just need yes. to get that out there. Okay. Yep. They they became known the serial thriller shortly thereafter. I don't I don't even know if they'd started until they okay. started Omega, but shortly thereafter they were known as the serial thrillers. So they had had a show. This was on a Saturday that we were having the first official Omega branded show, which was you know my promotion that I was booking. So the night before they were on a Friday night show somewhere, and uh, they went to eat something at a restaurant afterwards. And Manny Fernandez had been on their show with them as well. And Manny Fernandez came up to him and said, "Hey guys," he said. Yeah, you guys, uh, you guys working tomorrow? Where, where you guys, where you guys working at? They said, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're booked tomorrow. We're in, uh, we're in in Sanford, North Carolina. He said, yeah, Stamford, Stamford. I'm in, I'm in Stamford too. Yeah. He said, Stamford. Where's that at again? And uh, they're going. I don't, I don't think you're going to be here, Manny, on this show. Like the guy that is kind of does the booking for it. He said, you know, they, they, they only use like local guys, you know, and like younger guys. It's kind of like a a different promotion. They don't really use old school style guys. And he said, no, I'm booked there. He said, I'll see you tomorrow in Stamford. And uh, Shane and Mike arrived at that show early, and they told me, said, hey, we want to give you the heads up. Like I know we're still, you know, we hadn't met. We're still new as far as like becoming friends and whatnot. And as far as establishing like these bonds of trust, but we want to give you a heads up. Like we had nothing to do with this. Manny Fernandez was acting like he was booked on the show and he acts like he's going to show up tonight. So if he does, I want you to know, we were washing our hands clean of this. We didn't have anything to do with it. Um, he was asking us about info. So, so we just want you to know, we didn't have anything to do with it. And I was like, okay, well, thank you for the heads up. And just context here, Manny Fernandez, NWA tag champ, former NWA tag champ, well-traveled veteran. He's been on TV. He's gone through every territory to this point. So for some listeners who are listening to this who don't know who Manny Fernandez was, you have to understand at the time he's not in this guard of wrestlers that Matt and his friends are by any stretch of the imagination. Correct. So 
I had heard about Manny Fernandez because we were doing indies pretty regularly at that point. And, you know, the, the, the word on Manny Fernandez is that he would show up at indie shows always, and he would have a gun in his bag. Uh, he would be willing to hold promoters up for money. You know, he, he was just, he was, he was a bit of a carny, you know, he, he, he would, he would do whatever it took to, to get a wee fee. He was going to make sure he could get paid in whatever capacity, but he was also a, a rough, a rough character. You know, he wasn't afraid to throw down and fight or threaten someone, whatever. So he's like, he was a character I really don't want to be involved with. So you have a, you have a young ass Matt Hardy, you know, who's like, you know, 19 or 20 at this point. And it's the first Omega show we're having. And then uh, I had been warned. So I had a little bit of preparation as far as that goes. Eventually, Manny Fernandez does show up at this first ever Omega show. And uh, he has with him a a man named uh, Frankie Murdoch, who he trained, apparently, who claimed to be like the few of Dick Murdoch. And uh, he showed up. He said, yeah, he said, "Uh, where's the uh, where's the booker? We're here. We're here to work. And then everybody's like, uh. Uh, okay. And then here I come out, you know, obviously I'm dealing with this guy that is this well-known vet who's been in the business forever, who I've heard all these horror stories about in the locker room dealings over the years. So I come out and I, and, and I face this guy and I go, Hey, how are you? It's nice. Nice to see you, sir. My name's Matt. I'm the booker and I'm running the show here. I said, uh, how can I help you? He said, yeah, I'm booked on the show. Where am I getting dressed? And I said, uh, sir, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, you're, you're not booked on the show. There, there's there's absolutely a mistake. I'm, I'm so sorry. You, he's, no, I'm booked on the show. And uh, he said, I, w- I was booked by, uh, oh, my God, what was that guy's name? He said, I was booked by Mr. Dean. There was another guy who did another end of promotion somewhere, and he just threw a name up. No, I, I was booked by Mr. Dean. I'm on this show. And I said, no, I'm I'm sorry, sir. You're, you're not on the show. And I've noticed at this point, like, Jason has got behind me and also Marty and my brother. Like there's a little bit of, you know, people who were coming over and getting behind me, like having my back. And I noticed like Shane and Mike, uh, Mike Maverick had walked over to Manny and said, yeah, Manny, you're really, you're, you're not here. You're not here. He's like, Oh no, no, I'm, I'm here. I was booked. Mr. Dean booked me for this. He said, and uh, I am booked on this show. He said, I'm going to tell each and every one of you right now. He said, I am going to get paid. And then he got up in my face, you know, like inches from my face. He says, or somebody's kicked and it may be you. And then I remember, obviously, young Matt Hardy's like to all the shit at this point. And I just remember going, I'm so sorry you feel that way, sir. But I I don't have any money to pay you. Uh, Every bit of money I have for this budget has been spent and used. There's there's no money to, to be spent here. And at this point, both Shane and Mike Maverick had now like got over behind me. They hadn't tried to convince him. They're just like standing on my side where you can tell there's like him and this guy, Frankie Murdoch, who he's with, who also wanted a payday. And he said they were supposed to work, had been for the show where obviously, obviously they haven't. They were just showing up, trying to bully their way on our show. And then I said, sorry, it's just, it's not going to happen there. There's, there's no money. There's no budget. So I, I'm, I'm sorry. You're not going to get paid. You're not going to, you're not going to be wrestling here. There's, there's no room on the card. And then he said, Okay, well, can I at least set up my gimmick table since there's been some sort of misunderstanding? You know, at least try to make a few bucks. Said, that's fine. <laughs> and I just wanted, I wanted, I said, that's fine. That's fine. I'm very happy to do that. Set up a gimmick table, go crazy. That's fine. And lo and behold, years down the road, after myself and my brother made it, we were in WWE, 
we ran into Manny Fernandez, who was a janitor at a La Quinta hotel in Charlotte. We'd flown in and we were checking in to stay there that night because we were going somewhere else in Tennessee or Virginia. We weren't coming home. And he said, hey, remember that time I tried to bully my way on your show and you you, you stood your ground? He said, I was proud of you, kid. <laughs> Which is so funny, man. Wow. Manny Fernandez, man. Yeah. There you have it. You know, I'm hearing the story. I knew what the outcome was, but I'm hearing the story and there's almost a brotherhood element to it. Like hearing the part of that where your guys yeah. kind of stand behind you and they've right. got your back. That's a really special testament to the kind of relationship you had with these people at this time. Yeah, it really was. It was a very, it was a special testament to our crew, no doubt. Because they did, they they had my back, and it's like you know, this was like the ultimate enemy trying to invade, you know, our youth movement and like our thing that we'd worked so hard to like you know build upon. And this was our first official Omega show, you know, and we didn't want anyone to ruin it. So like everybody had my back and like was uh you know standing up behind me. It really was. It was a true brotherhood at that time. Now this is a famous show for a lot of reasons, not just the Manny Fernandez incident, but also. For something that has gone viral over the years regarding Jeff. Right. You mentioned Thomas knew some people who could help get some like guardrail set up, give you a little more of a professional yeah. feel. And they weld these big metal guardrails that they're using to separate the crowd from the ringside area. And the first match is Jeff and Shannon Moore versus Foma and Black Skull. Yes. And Jeff tries to do an acai moonsault and his opponents aren't entirely in the right place. They only catch part of him and he bangs right off this guardrail with his shin. Now, yeah. If anyone has ever hurt their shin, you know that it's just the <laughs> worst. Yeah. But coming at the guardrail with the speed and the angle that Jeff did, he basically indents his shit. Right. Tell us what happens after that, because his night is not done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these, these guardrails were heavy duty. I mean, they were like solid steel, like three inches of solid steel and they, they were heavy and they were strong and they were nice for being like a guardrail on a fence to keep the audience out and have a very uh, uh, definitive boundary between the audience and the wrestlers. But when Jeff hit this steel beam, like I said, it was so big and so thick. I mean, it bent automatically and he hit it so hard. And like we we figured immediately he broke his leg and we're like, he's going to have to go probably have emergency surgery. Like I, this was like so much impact and it bent it and moved it so much. And like it was around his shin. It had to be excruciating. And the main event that night, which we had been building to for a while, was Matt Hardy, high volt surge versus Will the Wisp. For the title, for the championship. So that was like a big match. That was like our marquee match that was, you know, we'd kind of try to sell all the people on. And we built the this inaugural audience. championship match. Yeah. We had built this audience over the years, you know, and like, oh, my God, this I don't think this is going to happen. But it did. And I remember Jeff got up. He finished the match. Once again, he's one tough son of a bitch. I'm sure people know this from watching his career the last 30 years. But he he got up. He finished the match. And then he came back and we're like, oh, my God, like, you know, what's what is the deal? And he said, I, I can go, I can go. He's a, he is a tough son of a gun, man, without a doubt. And he went out there and he's still like, I remember he charged at me and he took a backdrop, like full fledged 
over the top rope. I don't even think he touched the ropes and went through a table on the floor and still did the spot. It's a big spot we talked about doing earlier in the night, you know, even before he got hurt, but still hurt. He still did it and he still went through and and worked the match. We shortened it up just a little bit, but he still went out there and he went full gear. We've talked a lot on this podcast in the first five episodes about how you just knew with Jeff there was something special about him. Did yeah. these audiences recognize that too at the time, even for as young as he was? Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there, there's just this, this. You're just drawn to Jeff. There's something about his personality. When you hear that term over and over, you know, which someone can't really define, just that someone has it. I mean, Jeff, he has it. He has that quality. Just people gravitate towards him. They they feel comfortable with him. They 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 want to be close to him. They want to talk to him. He is someone they look at and they're like, oh my god, I want to understand what makes this guy tick. He just people are drawn to him, and and it was no different then. And one of the biggest compliments I could give Jeff is because he started off being like I was definitely a lot more outgoing, and I still am. I would say, even like if it comes to like social media stuff like that, Jeff's a very private person, and I'm very much outgoing. In some ways, Jeff's an introvert. When he performs, though, he kind of cuts loose. Uh, I, I am definitely more outgoing than Jeff is in the big scheme of things and in life and whatnot. Obviously, that's kind of like why I handle the business in. I'm the one that deals with all the other people, and, and I do the business aspect of everything. Jeff is just the rock star. He does the talent. But one thing I can say about Jeff, looking back to Omega, he had so much love for Will of the Wisp. And because he was a little bit of an introvert and he was a little bit timid and shy in his own way, it's so funny. It was a little harder for Jeff to play different characters. But whenever he would put on that mask and it was like his his identity was disguised and he was hidden, he was a totally different character. I mean, he, he turned into like what I feel like in my mind was a version of the Great Muda, which was a big inspiration for Will of the Wisp. But the way Jeff performed when he knew he had the comfort of that mask on and he was Will the Wisp, it was amazing. It was a total 180. He totally changed personalities. He changed the way he walked. He changed the way he talked. He changed the way he wrestled. And it was really something that made me proud of Jeff. And it was a really special talent and ability he had. And I feel like that's why he had so much love for Will the Wisp, ultimately even bringing it back, you know, in his TNA impact days. So what's the reception to these first couple of shows that Omega is running here among the local community? What's the draw look like? Are people showing that there's there is a desire for this product? Very much so. You know, we get to the point where we were drawing on a rail like three or four hundred people. And we had some shows that even we did seven or eight hundred. Wow. And then we, then we had times where there were people, there were other schools that were contacting us to run events there. Like, you know, we went to Wallace, North Carolina. We did shows in South Carolina near Tom's area. Uh, we ended up doing shows at East Wake High School, like around the Raleigh and Chapel Hill area where uh, Shane Helms and, and Mike Howell were from as well. Mike Maverick was from, you know, so like we were really starting to expand at this time. We always had our two major stops, which was Southern Pines and Sanford and the National Guard Armories. And then we also had the fair shows that we still ran. We always we always had those fair shows that there was just like an easy gig. They would give them to us. And that was like, you know, our first bookings you know, out trying to do our own thing. So it was so cool that those those stuck. And we always did those every single year. We would do three days at the fair. And those always ended up being special shows as well, because it was like our origin. You know, it was our it was our alpha for Omega. That's really cool. And it's, again, a credit to the fact that the community was ready to invest into something and you recognize that there was a need for it. Now, one thing that 
Thomas is given a lot of credit for is that he had a pretty keen eye for talent. He obviously discovered you guys. And he also came into contact with the guy who was starting to make a little bit of a rippling himself. And that was uh, Steve Carino. It was now, of course, with WWE on the training side of things. Yes. But well-traveled, has left an imprint on just about every major organization in some capacity. And alongside Steve, uh, Joey Matthews, Christian York, Joey Matthews, of course, Joey Mercury, Christian York, mm-hmm. someone who stepped away from wrestling and then came back and had a little bit of a second run. Lots of really strong young talent here. How important was bringing in guys like that in helping give legitimacy to your crew? Uh, Steve Carino helped out a lot. I remember when we first started doing shows on our own, even back in the ECWF days, maybe even going in, into the NFWA version of Omega, we were so upset that we couldn't get the publicity that all the guys up north were getting. I remember Reckless Youth was like in the magazines all the time, ranked number one or PWI and you'd see a starling, you know, you'd see Devin storm. You'd see Steve Carino's name all the time. And we're like, damn it. Why can't any of us guys in the South get the same type of, uh, you know, get the same type of uh, uh, publication. Why can't we get any kind of press? You know, what's going on here? I just saw recently revival wrote a tweet where uh, FDR, you know, they, they wrote a tweet about how they couldn't, they would have been hired a lot earlier, but there was no, no press in the South. I mean, but these guys were doing it and, you know, 2009, 2010, brother, you should have tried doing it in the early 90s and saw how tough it was before there was any internet. Like we were doing like some killer stuff and we didn't get any press. You know, all the press was around the New New Jersey, you know, New York area, Philadelphia. Those guys got loaded, you know, with all the press. So I feel like Steve Carino coming and being a part of Omega and joining us helped us with that because he was someone that they actively followed. And and they they actively regarded him as like someone who was in – you know, the mix when it came to pro wrestling. So that, that was great. And we were able to use that. He seems so different from uh, like a char- character or like from his, you know, found his roots in wrestling. He was so different. It was very easy to go along and make them like outsiders who invaded Omega. And he was actually running a promotion called NWA 2000 at that point. And they actually invaded. And it was during that time that like the NWO thing was starting to happen. So we were able to kind of get some juice off that. So it was cool to have like a interpromotional angle. You quite uh, literally did a spray paint on Thomas's back with a yeah, yeah, yeah. green spray paint. But uh, talking about Steve here, I feel like he is probably one of the most underappreciated workers of his era. I've watched a lot of Steve Carino over the years and just a great mind for the industry. And it seems like Omega was an opportunity that he viewed as a chance to help mold some talent around him and elevate them into bigger stars. Yeah. And and I do agree. Steve, very underappreciated. He has a brilliant mind for pro wrestling and the stuff he did at ECW as the king of old school was just genius. It was brilliant. And and I, I loved working with Steve and I, and I especially loved working with Steve because it gave me like, you know, a different perspective on pro wrestling because he was trained by someone totally different where we weren't trained or we didn't come from the same backgrounds. We had different mindsets, but we were able to kind of like work together and combine our thought process. And I think for, for us, it was a great learning experience as well, being around Steve and other guys who had been trained in very different ways. Time to tell you about something I'm super passionate about protecting your family. Yes, this is a life insurance ad for goliathlife.com. But to me, this is really about peace of mind. 
Think about insurance for a second. We all get medical and auto insurance, yet we never even know if we're going to have a need for it. Let me let you in on a little secret. You need life insurance. We're all going to die. Now, as you let that reality sink in, think about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow. If you don't have a plan for that, you need to visit goliathlife.com. And I mean, right now, and just personally, I've lost two friends in their forties this past year and a half. And I don't even want to think about what their families would be going through. Had they not had life insurance, if you don't have it, get it, protect your family. And I suggest you go to goliathlife.com because they've made the process of getting affordable life insurance. Super easy. Goliath life streamlines the life insurance process by allowing you to get quotes for more than 20 carriers within minutes. And you'll pick your terms and payments to fit your budget. You pick your price. You start the online application immediately and even schedule the medical exam to come to you. And I've done it. They sent someone to my office. I skipped the phone calls, the paperwork and the crazy invasive conversations. Goliath life makes buying life insurance simple. There's no hidden fees, no upsells, no hassle, hell, not even a phone call. Goliath life is life insurance in your hands on your time. Get multiple quick quotes right now from the comfort of your own home and begin your application in a few easy clicks right now at goliathlife.com. So Omega's picking up some momentum here. You've got a lot of talent. Another infamous spot from Omega makes its rounds around again. There's no internet here. So eventually these tapes make their way into the trade and eventually online. And that's from our boy Shane Helms here and the serial thrillers. And it involves you and a military truck. Take me through this, Matt. Yes, uh, we were doing our, you know, annual or monthly, not annual or monthly angle or bi-monthly angle and spot show in Sanford, North Carolina at the National Guard Armory. And there was a deal where the military was on some sort of high alert and they had to have all the, this equipment in the venues. And I remember we came in to set up our ring and, and, and get ready for the show. And like, there's this huge transfer truck trailer in there, which weighed tons and tons and tons. And we're like, Hey, are you guys going to move this? They said, no, we can't. It's just policy. We said, yeah, but we've put it on a deposit and we've run the venue for this day. So sorry, this is what we have. And then just, started brainstorming. I was like, well, what if we use it and make it part of the set in some capacity? You know how, you know, uh, WWF or WCW, they would like have all this stuff and they would have a special set on a pay-per-view. It was like, we'll, we'll view it as that. It's like a pay-per-view and this is going to be part of our set. And on top of being part of the set in the background behind the commentators and whatnot, we figured, well, maybe we can use it as a spot. And I remember Shane walking in and the main event that night, we were going into uh, a Hardy Boys Versus serial thrillers angle coming up. I was wrestling uh, Mike Maverick in the main event. Shane was going to be in his corner, and obviously they were the they were the hills. Uh, there was going to be some, you know, some some dastardly tactics in that match. And I was like, well, we can figure out something where we can have Shane jump off and put me through a table. I said this would be really cool if he's down for it. And I remember he walks in the building, dragging his bag, and go, "Hey man, are you cool jumping off that and putting me through a table?" And he's like, "Sure." <laughs> and he just picks the bag, rolls right in the room, and it was just said, just like that. And uh, looking back, it was it was pretty crazy. And I think the clip became so famous because it was much further down than he thought it was. And as he jumped, he overshot the table a little bit, and he like kind of landed on his face and like scorpioned 
kind of across his body, you know, he bent over backwards and it really looked like, I mean, it was a little rough on me, but I'm sure it killed him. It murdered him. And, and that clip went viral. Something that was cool about all the Omega, you know, VHS tapes. And when people were recording it, whenever they started spreading around like that DVD death Valley driver board became like a big thing, which Omega became notoriously famous on. I mean, I, I remember I've heard from Tony Khan that he saw some of that, you know, some of the Omega stuff back in the day. I'm just shocked which, to hear that. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, you know, which he he had heard that, you know, like the tape trading and whatnot. And that, that was just something Ted Hobgood helped us out with that a lot as well. He got tons of footage from Japan, videotapes he would give us. And he did a lot of tape trading of the Omega stuff as well, which kind of got the word out and spread the word about it. And that's I feel like. That's how it became like such a cult favorite over time because of all that tape trading. And they're like, oh, my God, there are all these guys in the South that are doing all this insane, crazy stuff. And they're doing these killer matches. And now we're just hearing about it now. Like, how come this wasn't on TV or how come we didn't hear about it? You know, just before the Internet, it was just hard to, to get that kind of buzz. And it was hard to, to, to get your product out there. That is one of the greatest gifts of the Internet is that it allows that. Now, this is May 1998 that this happens. And that's important because Omega hasn't even been around a full year yet. But you're getting somewhat of a reputation in the area. You mentioned you're drawing good crowds, fucking tape trading. There's this kind of cult following. And at this show, you tell Thomas, hey, we're signing a full-time deal with the WWF. What were those emotions like? in having to tell him something that I'm sure is going to radically affect how he does business going forward. This is your baby. At the same time, you're a draw for this. I have to imagine that's kind of bittersweet. Yeah. it. Was, I mean, it was very strange because we had signed at that point and we just didn't know that they said, just keep doing what you're doing as of right now. You know, we'll tell you when something is going to be different. You know, like if you're going to show on the road full time or, or whatever, you know, and they kind of promised us towards the end of 97. They, they, they had definitely shown interest that they wanted to, to sign, you know, my brother and I. And I know they they were very interested in, in uh, Jason Orange as well. So whenever they told whenever we'd signed and whenever we told Thomas, you know, we've signed with them, you know, as of now, just the word is like, just keep doing what you're doing, you know, until we buzz you and something changes, whatever. And I mean, I for us we had like, you know, achieved a, another dream, you know, it was our dream to be wrestlers. We get to wrestle in Omega and we had to, I got to do my own shows and, and book and, you know, play every single role in a wrestling promotion, which was kind of a dream of mine too. And it was so great to do it there, but also we were getting to go to the big dance. So that was extremely exciting with it being bittersweet. Yeah. There was going to be a part of us that were, you know, was going to hate leaving, Omega, you know, if, if that's what it comes down to. I mean, at that point, we just didn't know. We said, who knows? Maybe we'll just stay under contract and we'll never, ever get caught up, whatever. You know, so, yeah, it, it, it was a tad bittersweet, but we were also very excited because it felt like we were fulfilling another dream of ours by signing with WDB. And we were hoping we would just get the opportunity to, to, to become a big deal on that roster as well. Now, WWE does eventually let you still work these Omega shows for, for the short term, at least over the course of the next year or so, maybe a little less than a year, but that kind of gives you an opportunity to flex your creative muscle and you're going to get thrown into different opportunities. 
for stories, you were supposed to have a big blow off match with the thrillers based on uh, that spot that we just mentioned. But uh, Mike Maverick ends up falling off a roof and <laughs> breaks both of his arms. I don't mean to laugh at the, the what happened, but this is such like an indie thing that happens. And that's why it makes me chuckle. So Jason, Joey Abs actually subs in for him. You guys win the title. So here you're WWF bound, but you guys take the titles. Uh, Thomas tells us that he feels that this is like one of the best indie matches of the 1990s. It garnered a little bit of a reputation in the tape trade. Uh, any memories about that match? Yeah, I'm sure that, that that I feel like that's the the final match between us and the serial thrills. Once Mike healed up, Mike Maverick did. He broke his arms on a shoot job, brother. You know, which he was doing roofing, and he. Uh, fell through a faulty, a faulty roof, and he ended up breaking both arms. Oh, uh, the man. match where Jason substituted, we were kind of building an angle anyway, where Jason was going to turn heel, and he was going to end up being like the big heel champion. So even though him and I, we were close friends, and he was saying over and over that he didn't trust my brother, and he was alluding that he thought my brother was Willow, we had a very integral angle there, and I love doing that. Like I was doing very, you know, it's like I, I really needed a TV show to like try and get over all these angles I, I was trying to pull off because we were doing a thing where Jason was kind of slowly turning hill on me because we had been a tag team and he was almost jealous of the Hardy Boys success. And he was telling me my brother's bad news because really my brother is also Will of the Wisp. But we kind of made all these things work together. We ended up doing a deal where myself and my brother won the titles. Jason got mad at me. He snapped and beat up everybody. I had one final bluff match with Will of Wisp, which was a two out of three falls match. And if he loses, he has to unmask. And he unmasked. It ended up being my brother. And then we realized we were the champions together. And then the match that you're talking about that was talked about that was so highly regarded as this great any match was our last Omega match. And it was in East Wake, which was the high school that Shane went to. One of our big, like over a thousand people were there. A huge crowd. And it started off where... Jeff came out as Willow and took the mask off again and went full-fledged hill. And then I came out and joined him. So the Hardy boys, which almost we were selling ourselves as sellouts because we had joined the great Vince McMahon and the great machine of the WWE and like, fuck all you little people, you know, this, this little, you know, this little nickel and dime Omega shit didn't cut it anymore. We're going big brother. We're, we're properties of Titan sports now. And that that match we had was the crowd was so involved in it. And then at the very finish, where Shane and Mike Maverick win the tag team titles from the Hardy Boys, who now had portrayed sellouts all throughout the night, you know, and it was our last hurrah before leaving to go work WWE full time, which was pretty ironic because '99 is obviously the year. A couple months after that is when things really broke out for us, and we became you know, runaway stars in WWE, but that, that match was a lot of fun. And, and that match was, it was crazy how popular and beloved and famous that match became. And there was just a lot of hype in it too, because it was our final match, I think. Well, I want to say too, I, I was referring to the other match. Thomas put that over as well as one of the oh. best indie matches he's ever seen, but this is the one that gets uh, all the steam. And I have to imagine there was probably a sense of finality for you and at the same time, knowing that this would probably be the last time you'd all be on a show together, it had to tug at the heartstrings a little bit. It did. We, I know that that night after the show ended, everybody, the whole crew stuck around and we all went and we all ate together that night. And it was 
very much a brotherhood like night, you know, because we did that. There was, there was some sense of finality, just like you said. And, and we knew it'd probably be the last time that we were all together in that locker room, in that same environment. And we'd been through so much, you know, between everybody having my back for the Manny Fernandez scenario, or, you know, everybody having one another's back when we had to deal with Jens Lutz and, you know, the ring was held hostage, you know, or everybody having, are back when we did that very first show, that ECWF show, which I was super stressed out in, which was just one of those stressful days and events of my lifetime. We just, we'd all lived through so much and we really did. We were a brotherhood through and through and it really showed. And for context sake, you're really only about a year and a half or so into Omega's existence here. And the Hardys are off to become big time stars. Shannon Moore is starting to get real looks at WCW, and eventually he would find his way to WWE Impact. Um, Christian York and Joey Matthews are going to end up coming in uh, around the time or just before WWE buys WCW. These talent are taking this stage that you helped build and in turn are cashing in and signing contracts off of that. How rewarding was that for you? It was, it was amazing. I mean, it really was. I mean, you had, you know, myself and Jeff, we signed, we were the first two to sign with WWE. Jason Arn ended up signing with WWE, who would go on to be known as Joy Abs with the Mean Street Posse. Um, Shane Helms and Shannon Moore, they signed with WCW at that time through Chris Canyon. They were about to sign Joy Mercury and uh, Christian York, but I actually got them signed with WWE and they went to the, the, the developmental territory in Memphis and they worked out there for a while. Um, Christian ended up kind of uh, fizzling out a little bit after they first got released, you know, and he came back, as you said, for that second run. But everybody knows that Joy Matthews obviously went on to find really great success as Joy Mercury in the industry. And then you had Steve Carino, who was obviously at ECW, uh, Mike Maverick and Otto Schwanz, Mike Maverick being Shane Helms' original partner. Those two, along with Marty Garner, went to ECW and they started working on their television product as the Dups. And they were like one of their one of their regular acts that were on other TVs and whatnot. And then I was able to get a look at the Dups and they ended up signing WB signed. Mike Maverick and Otto Schwanz, but they didn't sign Marty. Just he, him being the smaller guy, he was almost, almost kind of like the manager of those guys. So we had 12 guys. Uh, Caprice Coleman is another guy that ended up signing with the Ring of Honor, uh, was uh, an Omega original. You know, we, we trained him. He was one of the first students in our training school, and we had trained him from the jump. I mean, there, there were a lot of guys that ended up signing deals out of that. You know, and you almost get to say that uh, Trevor Goodell was part of that because he was – always working and doing stuff. He was running the gimmick tables and he was a little kid running around, you know, like my son Maxwell's age at that juncture, you know, and now he's obviously signed a contract with WWE and working one of the main players on NXT. We're going to have an episode on him later in the year. And you may be saying to yourself, well, Matt's just rattling off all these names. I want to hear more about them. The beauty of this podcast is it is a long form storytelling podcast. We're going to have a chance to dive much more in on all of these guys over the course of our run here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy and Omega itself is in order to tell those stories that about those guys, I feel like the audience kind of needs to have a baseline understanding of the platform that was Omega, a promotion that really only ran for about two years. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it, it did. I mean, it was, 
the the most well-known time of its existence were those two years that it ran. But I mean, obviously going back to like 93, 92, it was really in existence that whole while. It wasn't sure. the known name, you know, but the name, the, the time where it had all the notoriety were those two years. And that, that's really when we built up all the momentum and we we're doing so many different shows and it was such a regular thing for us. And like, it, it really was, I mean, for me, I was making my living between going to college. I was making my living off selling sponsorships and running Omega as well as raking pine straw, which the Hardy compound is full of pine trees. I would rake and sell pine straws. And I had taught myself how to sell. I broke out my mom's old sewing machine, dusted it off, taught myself how to sew. And I would make guys gears, you know, all those tights you saw the Hardy boys wear when they originally debuted in, in WWE, you know, they had the hope and faith and the flower tights and whatnot, all that stuff I made, you know, so that, that, that was my living. And I was making a living, being a pro wrestler at a young age while going to college. So that was, that was pretty cool. That's all I wanted to do, you know, and we worked hard enough that we were rewarded by signing a, a deal with WWE. And, you know, most people know that the rest of all that's history, but you're talking about all these characters that work for Omega, you know, these names we were rattling off. We had so many guys that went to be in prominent positions for big companies. You know, I know the dirt on all these guys, you know, so there, there's a, a lot of great podcasts we can do going forward on all these different names. And that's why we kind of needed to get a little of a baseline here to yeah, set exactly. all of those stories up. Omega starts to lose some steam towards the end of 99. Everyone's getting signed or there's different commitments. Steve Carino's moved back up to Philadelphia you start to see the writing on the wall. You're not working Omega shows really at this time because the Hardy boys are becoming really freaking famous and they're about to have this no mercy ladder match. And around the time of the no mercy ladder match, that's kind of when Omega more or less shuts shop here. Uh, what's your feeling at that time? I mean, that, that was obviously sad. I mean, there's always going to be a very special place in my heart for Omega. You know, I know Thomas, took on all the responsibilities and I, I loved working with him. He he was a great person to work with because he would like invest and he, he had money. He was financially set at that time in his life. And, and with, with me and Thomas, Thomas would say like, you know, I would like to see some of this on the show and then I would kind of make it happen. And then he always trusted me, you know, every booking decision, he never questioned. I would explain it to him. And every angle I ever decided to do, he he always dug and he always was fully committed. He would dive in with both feet and, and have my back. And all the guys would. I mean, it was a great team effort. And like at that point, you know, as far as being the leader, it was very cool because like everybody had my back and everybody trusted me. So that, that was a, a huge responsibility that, that I took very seriously. Who is the unsung hero of Omega? I mean, I, I think the un, unsung hero was probably probably a Jeff Hardy. You know, Jason Arndt was also very special at that point. But I mean, Jeff is just a special talent, as we all know, you know, but he was he worked every show twice, every single show. Not all of us did. Most of us did not. But he worked every show twice because he had so much love and passion for Wolverine, Jeff Hardy and Willow. So every show he worked twice. And those are two characters that were like both extremely over everywhere we went. So, you know, I, I got to say the unsung hero was Jeff Hardy. Jeff couldn't care less about like taking a paper and pen and like writing down a card or like trying to figure out angles. He's just like, just tell me what to do. And let me, let me paint my picture. That's what he wants to do. You know, tell me what to do and let me draw my 
art. I'll make it a masterpiece. I promise. And, and he really, he really does. He just like, he'll take whatever you give him and he will make it into something special. In the mid two thousands, the uncommon passion DVD is made. How did that come about? And what did that do for the legacy of Omega? You know, Omega grew that large cult following, as we'd said, from like tape trading and whatnot. Then obviously so many people saw the video clips, like once the internet became bigger and once stuff could be uploaded, uploaded online, there were different things. So like this documentary was an idea that Thomas had had. It was his idea initially. And he's like, Hey, I'd like to put this together and kind of like honor the memory of Omega. And it's when I was released from WB for a few weeks I think we said we did it, but we did it afterwards. And I just told WWE, I said, oh, I just did it while I was released for a few like weeks, even though it was a little later in 2005, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it was very cool to, to get this together. And if you notice, everybody is on it in some capacity, with the exception of Shane Holmes, because he was under contract the whole while. I don't think he'd ever had a point where he could do any of that because he'd always been under contract. So they got footage from Jeff from like 2003, 2004. You didn't have updated footage on him because he was working again soon at that time. But like uh, I was able to get in there and do some current interviews. And and obviously I feel like I almost had to be in it because I was like, a, you know, I was just such a cornerstone of Omega, especially with all the, you know, with all the booking and with the, you know, as far as the, the promoting of the shows and whatnot. And like, you know, booking from a talent aspect, booking from a show aspect. You know, I had a lot of commitments and it was stressful in some ways, but I don't even think back then being young, I didn't even look at it as stressful. I just looked at it as something I enjoyed and I was so passionate about it. It's one of those things, you know, what what is the old expression? Like if you do a job you love, you never work one day in life. I mean, that's how pro wrestling has been for me. If I'm doing something I love, then I I never work a single day in my life. So I'm very fortunate. I've been able to, to do that for so, so long. We'll do an episode down the line on this, but Omega does get a relaunch in 2013. Was that something deep down that you knew you'd always want to take a shot at if you ever got a chance? I don't know. Um, maybe I I, I I, probably did have a feeling like, you know, when I'm retired or whatever, I would love to now that I have all this knowledge and experience and, and big and, money here. Yeah. And have have, have really seeing the ups and downs of pro wrestling, you know, I think I would have a much better idea of what I'm doing uh, Then maybe I would do it. But, you know, at, at that point I was still working very regular and that was headed up by, by Shane Helms. And I gave him all my blessings. And I said, yeah, just, if you build the shows around, you know, my schedule and my brother's schedule, who was at TNA impact at that time, I was like, yeah, we'd, we'd be happy to do all the shows we can because we're both kind of uh, on freelance contracts. So th- those were great. They were, you know, as far as now thinking about it, like doing it down the road, I don't know, man, like with my kids and everything, it would be such a huge responsibility, such a huge undertaking. I don't I don't know if I would do it right now unless like there was this uh, like outline all set up where all these other people were doing all the responsibilities that that would be a huge burden to bear. Right now, I just want to like enjoy my life and enjoy my kids. Well, who's to say in 10, 12 years, Surge 2 versus Willow the Wisp 2. In uh, Little Barty or Maxwell or Wolfgang could uh, happen one day. Who's to say? Yeah. Never know. Um, exactly. We like connecting, though, you know, the past to the effect that it has today here on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. And I mentioned it at the beginning. I feel like the success of Omega really 
lend some credence to the value of local indies in small communities? How do you think it helps shape the perception of what a ma and pa indie can be? I mean, I think it was hugely impactful. One, the style that we did was like no other style anywhere in the world at that time, especially in the early 90s. Like we were doing an X Division style which ultimately became like the style in pro wrestling. It's what AEW does now. It's what a lot of the WWE matches do, you know, which is like, go, 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 go. It's not big brooding guys working a lot of rest holds. That's not what we did. It was go, go, go. So I feel like from, from that standpoint, we, we were kind of trendsetters, you know, and I've, I've taken a lot of pride in that, you know, that, that Matt and Jeff Hardy are both trend centers in many capacities. So I feel like my booking in Omega and the way I wanted everyone to work. Also, if you watch an AEW television show now, and I feel like AEW is, is the most on the pulse of the current pro wrestling style. I feel like the opening match is always the barn burner and the closing match is always a barn burner. I always wanted our first match to be a great match and the last match to be a great match. I had that mindset and mentality many, many years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. And the tape trading that happened and the way so many people are just aware of the, the moves that I did and will the wisp and surge and high voltage and, you know, venom and the angles, you know, the people that have seen, that clip of Shane Helms diving off that transfer truck bed onto me and smashing me through that table. That, I mean, that clip is like a famous iconic clip when it comes to Omega. I mean, that, that that's, that's pretty cool. And these things that you think about, like so many casual wrestling fans have like seen this stuff or, or aware of this stuff. And when we're just doing it, it's just like, Oh, well, you know, let's go and have a great show in front of these few hundred people that are here in this local town of Sanford, North Carolina, which no one knows about in the world, you know, this stuff's happening and it was captured on film. And then that clip becomes famous and iconic. I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful. And it just shows that there are people who can have dreams and aspirations and, and chase these dreams and aspirations. And even if they don't know fully what they're doing, if they're very passionate about what they're doing, it can lead to something. Because obviously it led to something for us. I mean, that that is at our core, it is the nucleus of what made all those talents get signed. We were all very like-minded. We were all there working for the greater good. We wanted the whole show to be great from top to bottom. And th- there was no jealousy. There was no envy. Everybody had each other's backs. I mean, and that's very obvious when you look at those things like the whole Manny Fernandez incident, you know, and everybody had my back. That never happens in local indies where everyone right. has that camaraderie and is looking out for each other because at that stage, everyone wants to get signed. Everyone wants to take it to that next level. And and that, that was our whole, our whole mentality is we wanted everyone to succeed always. And on top of just, we were all close friends as, as well as being, you know, you know, fellow wrestlers we were all like close legitimate friends and all had great relationships so it, it just it is really special in that capacity and it shows you what uh, a group of talented individuals coming together working for the the one common goal can do i mean it it showed so much success and so many people went on to to be signed out of a promotion it's hard to look and find a, a grassroots indie promotion that had 11 or 12 people go on to be on global television. 
You know, it's 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 crazy. It's insane to think that that actually happened, and it really did. Out of rural North Kakalaki. Um, And that's pretty incredible. You know, one thing that stood out to me in the DVD was Steve said that he felt if Omega really had like the right funding behind it at the time, it could have been a viable number four promotion in the United States, which is such a bold statement. We're talking WWE, WCW, ECW. He felt that Omega, you know, whereas ECW was the alternative to WWE and WCW, he felt Omega was even more of an alternative to ECW and that it could have blazed its own trail with the right funding. Do you, is, is that Matt fact or is that Matt fiction? Oh, I mean, that's, that's a hell of a compliment. I just watched that again recently too, as you know, and man, I just, that statement was a, a crazy compliment. And I don't know. I mean, if we had been funded, if we would have had a network and a system where we could have financially been okay, if we would have had like a machine behind what we were doing, maybe, I mean, once again, like having a machine behind you, uh, having someone who can finance your show and make sure you have all these different shows and all these venues and and make sure the roster is covered. If you had it, maybe. I don't know. We were doing some special stuff, you know, and who knows if uh, if we would have had a machine behind us, maybe we could have been been the, the fourth big one. Well, let's close out this podcast by answering some fan questions, Matt. It is hashtag ask Matt. Lots of questions here about Omega. Alicia asks, what was your favorite Omega match and why? I would say my favorite overall Omega match uh, would be myself and my brother versus Serial Thrillers in East Wake, where they won the Omega Tag Team Championships for us. It was just so much fun. They were such a an incredible energy in the venue. You know, we were in, in their hometown and their neck of the woods, and we were already playing the big shot WWE guys and just er everything fell into place. It was just a really special and magical night. And another match that I really loved as well was when we did the two out of three falls match with myself and Will the Wisp, where he ended up unmasking because when Jeff took off his mask and exposed himself as Jeff Hardy to the Omega crowd that night, he, when he went outside, he actually he cried. He was like so emotional about things. And it's because that character, he had so much love for that character. And I feel like it was probably like it was almost like a bereavement mm. for Willow. Like if, if it is truly over and I'm not doing it anymore, like I'm, I'm missing a part of me. Maybe like, you know, when you hear someone who plays like an iconic character on a television show and when they know that show's over and that character has been killed off or whatever and they're sad about it, you know, they have to kind of like disconnect. I feel like Jeff had to disconnect from the the Willow persona that night. We've seen so many of the clips. Derek asked, did Omega have a local TV deal? Uh, we did not. We did not have a local TV deal, but uh, we we record everything. And I know we we recorded a couple of things like in a very professional vein. And we made uh, VHS tapes and later DVDs out of those events. But no, we did not have a TV deal. We weren't quite, we weren't making that kind of money yet. Oh, you know what else is not making money? Two hours here. Two hours. Two hours of this. Two we're hours, rapping. okay? We're rapping, Rebby. We're rapping. I why promise. You, why don't you hold up? Don't hold up your phone. Hold up some we're money. Rapping. You're going to be taking two hours. <laughs> I don't want to see your phone. We're rapping. I promise. I promise. I'm keeping us under two hours, Matt. Yeah, you have a, I don't want to be on the wrong side of Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Hardy. I promise you that. Couple more questions here, Felipe. Uh, what's one move or spot you guys used to do on the Omega days you'd wish to bring back? I really like this, some of the moves you guys used to do, like the double monkey flips or your springboard moonsault or Jeff's Phoenix splash. 
some of the moves I would like to bring back. I mean, I would love to do the springboard moonsault. Uh, physically, it just, I am not a young man anymore. I can't, uh, I'm not as flexible as I used to be. Uh, what Probably my favorite move I would bring back would be where I charge at my opponent and go to close the line. He's by the apron and Brett back drops me into the ropes and I springboard back down and DDT him on the floor. That was one of my favorite moves. All right. And uh, I'm terrified of Mrs. Hardy. So that's uh, that's going to be the end of our ask mats. But I was I was just going to put over Mrs. Hardy, too. And Rebby's Twitch streams. What do we got coming up with the uh, House Hardy and Twitch this week, Matt? Uh, I'm, I'm sure we're, we're going to keep you up to date on all things that are happening here on the Hardy compound. And there's always something going on here at the Hardy compound. So, yeah, the Twitch streams, they're uh, they're always fun. And whatever is uh, is current. In society and pro wrestling and pop culture, we always uh, we always touch on it. Holy moly! And you can check out the House Hardy on Twitch. Uh, it's can't miss content. I promise you that. Uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in here every week on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. And next week, Matt, we are going to be taking a dive into big money. Matt, we keep talking about the Italian Stallion. We're going to learn the story behind it and how it's connected to AEW today. And uh, rumor has it, we might even get some run-ins potentially for that episode. Outstanding. I love the sound of it, Matt. Uh, I'm going to let you go. And I'm going to try not to shake in my boots for the next few hours here on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. Matt, anything else you'd like to add this week? I had such a fun time going through Omega with you. I did too. Yeah. I, uh, Omega was a very special time in my life and in my career. And, uh, I just want to thank everyone that has really had a special shout out or revisited the past to, uh, to put over Omega. I am greatly appreciative of you because Omega was my baby back in the day. And I'm so happy it became so beloved. Make sure you check out the extreme life of Matt Hardy on Spotify, Apple, Google podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, five star reviews, share it, rate it. We want to hear what you got to think. Tweet at us at Matt Hardy pod. The words have been spoken. My self-confidence is broken. We'll see you next time here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy. <laughs>